The decision that you're making online is really different from the decision that you're making in store. And so we did a ton of consumer testing with our D2C packaging that basically told us this cannot go in the store. There's no picture of the food. People have no idea maybe what some of these dishes are. They don't understand the flavor profiles. This thing that we had held on a pedestal for so long cannot come with us into this next stage of our business. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. The word Omsum, the name of one of the most exciting companies in food, is taken from the phrase Omsum, meaning rowdy or rambunctious in Vietnamese. The company's co-founder, Kim Pham, joined me to discuss how rowdy can get you on the shelves of Whole Foods and how she and her sister Vanessa are changing the way we sauce. This is such a personal and real conversation, and I'm so lucky that Kim joined me in the studio. I hope you enjoy it. Kim Pham, welcome to the Taste Podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to have you in the studio. Just from the jump, from Maya Kamal Tikka, Tikka Masala to Hamburger Helper, Dump and Stir, I feel like, has been part of our cooking vocabulary forever. I mean, it's, it's truly how many of us cook in our kitchens. You and your sister... <laughs> Vanessa needed needed a change. Like you felt it in your body that this 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 category needed to change. So yeah. so tell me why. Oh gosh, how far do I go back? I mean, I, it's it's really rooted in Vanessa and I's identities first and foremost. We're first-gen Vietnamese Americans and daughters of refugees, and growing up, we just never felt seen or heard by that quote-unquote ethnic aisle, right? And especially growing up in the '98. 0.5% white town in Boston, Massachusetts, mm. I think we really saw kind of firsthand how our sense of identity can be clouded and in shame and in being feeling othered. Mm-hmm. And so our approach to building Omsom was less about like, let's disrupt the market with this specific <laughs> product format, right? It Great was, voice. <laughs> thank just, you. <laughs> just nailed it. It was more about like, how can we create this holistic brand that we so wish existed for first and second gen Asian Americans. Like that was kind of like the North Star. Like how can we reclaim and celebrate the multitudes in Asian flavors? Yes. And also Asian stories. Yeah. And so we, you know, we developed the starter kind of packet format because we were like, you know, we did a ton of consumer research, all the nerdy stuff that, you know, everyone does when they start a business. And we identified like, oh, wow, you know, when it comes to cooking Asian food in people's homes, they struggle with getting all the seasoning spices, sauces, aromatics, etc. And then even once they have them inside their home, how do you mix and transform and and kind of make it taste like what you have in the restaurant or what you grew up with? So, like, that's how we kind of came up with the format. But for us, the true kind of spark was how can we build something so proud and loud in every way, like from our chef kind of partnerships all the way through the brand and the content and the storytelling that we do. It was a rather, I guess, like holistic approach to building a food brand. And extremely strategic and extremely (laughs) dope. Like I have to say. That was totally on purpose. (laughs) I love the flavor. I love the the, the vibe. I love how it tastes. Like Mm. my buddy Dookie Hong and you did a collaboration. (laughs) That was how it entered my world. But then I went and bought some and I. My wife, Tamar, has made a, a packet um, recently as well. Yeah. Delicious. Let's <laughs> talk, how does it work exactly as a home cook? How does Omsum actually work? Yeah, so essentially it's just a little packet that you rip, pour, and fire up with whatever protein and veggies that you have in your home. So yeah, essentially think, 
in my mind, I'm like, it's like hamburger helper, but for really restaurant quality Asian dishes. And the sauces are, feel markedly different. They're mm-hmm. really kind of texture forward. We work super hard to source all of the ingredients directly from Asia. It's chef approved because we work with amazing folks like Dookie. Um, we just really wanted to create something perhaps that was a staple, kind of like this rip and pour mm-hmm. format, but really up level it in all of the ways. Yeah. So let's go over some of the products. So <laughs> we've got, you know, Dookie did a Korean collab. Yeah. But what are what are some of the other uh, you know flavors that yeah. you're working with? So we have seven seven flavors across six different Asian cuisines, largely Southeast Asian and East Asian. They're all hinged on specific Asian dishes. So with Dookie, we have a spicy pulgogi. It's essentially like a smoky gochujang marinade. Um, we have two Thai dishes, a kapow and a lop. We have mm-hmm. a Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue marinade. Like they're oh, I love that yeah. <laughs> one. That one is the one I bought, and I, I actually I really enjoyed Yay. it. Yeah, they're kind of they're you know staple. I'd say like flavor profiles and a lot of kind of Asian American households. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to to make it feel more accessible to everybody. Now, you've grown and grown. We talked, <laughs> your sister and I, the three of us had a chit-chat on Zoom, I think at the beginning of the pandemic. Literally, it was years like, ago. It was years ago. You've gone from um, this really loud and proud brand that was uh, omnipresent on social <laughs> to now you're, you've got national distribution uh, in Whole yeah. Foods. I mean, let's talk about a little bit of the, the CPG founder side of it, how yeah. difficult, because I feel like it, it isn't stressed enough, how yeah. difficult it is to get into Whole Foods, to ramp up, totally. all that. Yeah, it's been a it's I'm not gonna lie to you. It's been a really brutal journey running yeah. a small business in the pandemic. Brutal. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, the way that we thought about it is that I think our strategy was that we really wanted to make a big splash on social through direct to consumer and really build this brand that we would then use as a launch pad into retailers. Because we saw, you know, speaking to a ton of CPG founders that they're like, starting small and going door by door can feel like a slog. It can be a long and arduous journey. And a lot of companies don't make it right. And, and we saw that and we're like, is there a way that we could do something riskier, but potentially have a bigger payoff? And so that was us going like, all right, we're going to go pure D to C for the first two years. Like we're not going to touch stores because we knew that the storytelling and the brand that we wanted to build needed digital real estate to be able to be like proud and loud fully and to also build our community and kind of build the incredible brand champions and evangelists that we have like ride or die for Amsam. It's honestly the biggest honor. And so after doing that for two years, that's when we were like, all right, I think now that we've kind of made a splash, let's Let's see what how these you know buyer conversations go, and we found that that kind of very strategic decision really made all the difference in us being able to even just get into the door with Whole Foods buyers. Yeah, and I don't know if like I ever told you the story of how that went down. It's actually kind of like a fun. Story yeah, I'd like story. to hear about because you had to probably go down to Austin and present. So we had been trying to have conversations with a global buyer at Whole Foods in our category for months. And, you know, like, you know, you're in their inbox and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know a lot about this individual. I'm sure, like, just <laughs> in general, like, this is a very important individual. You yes. know a lot about this person. And we had been trying to get a meeting in the calendar for months, for months, because we knew that Whole Foods was going to be kind of like our first step into yeah. that world. And it just didn't happen. So Vanessa and I were like, okay, what if we do something kind of scrappy? <laughs> So we emailed them and we're like, hey, actually, we're in Austin this week. I'm actually here to, like, visit a friend. Would love to come by the Whole Foods office and, like, you know, make some omsom for you. And they're like, oh, my God, amazing. Yeah, tomorrow, come for lunch. Vanessa booked a flight that evening. We were, we were still in New York, You're by the way. You're still in New York and you were, okay. <laughs> Literally Just in our go. Brooklyn apartments. This. She flew down the next morning. I hopped on Instagram and was like, 
hey, Austin friends, is can anyone help my sister cook all of our dishes, like, literally tomorrow morning in her Airbnb? And we found, like, a friend of a friend who owned a food truck down there. And then the next morning, her and Vanessa cooked all of our dishes, packed them up into Tupperware. Vanessa went to the Austin HQ. Wow. And we got, and that's how we got So the presentation went down. And they were like, oh, amazing. This is so great. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, and so on the, on the spot, they're like, let's do it. I don't, I don't know if it was necessarily on the spot, yeah, but that but. was like the meeting that really kind of transformed their perception of Amsam. Now, Kim, is there one dish that you think really sealed the deal with this buyer? Um, I think it was probably our Vietnamese lemongrass barbecue marinade. Yeah. It's just we have a personal connection to it, too, as Vietnamese yeah. um, first-gen kids. So I think that, you know, that's an easy, versatile one. And also we have the personal story. <laughs> so what's your split now, like retail channels to D2C? Yeah, I mean, it used to be obviously all D2C. Yeah. And now I think we're kind of seeing slowly the inverse. You know, I think with the world opening back up and quote unquote the pandemic being over, mm-hmm. a lot of Americans are going back into stores shopping. It, it makes sense. And at the end of the day, like food products, 70 plus percent of those decisions are still made in the store. So yeah. um, we're starting to kind of see that that flip a little bit. And that's been kind of a fun learning curve. <laughs> yeah. So you've got Whole Foods is one channel. Where else can we buy your products outside of the website? Are there other retail channels? Yeah. So we're going to start slowly expanding into other retailers, but you Great. can also get us on Amazon. <laughs> oh, Amazon. Heard yeah. about them. They're pretty good. They got that prime thing. <laughs> now let's get into the R&D because I think this is a really interesting element because you said you're yeah. mostly East Asian and Southeast Asian. Do you stay within Asia with all of your your, your flavors, um, or do you expand? Second part is, how do you actually come up with the, yeah. the, the SKUs, the products? Yeah, so one of the kind of, I'd say, like, core cornerstones of Amsam is that, you know, yes, Vanessa and I are first-gen Vietnamese Americans, but at the end of the day, we cannot purport to tell people how to eat Korean or Chinese or Japanese. And so our kind of chef partnerships, who we call tastemakers, were kind of core to that. So it's an incredibly collaborative process. Like our first three sauces, we did not know the dish that we wanted to build off of. We didn't really have the idea of like what the flavor profile would be. We just kind of went in and spoke with these chefs and literally were like, what do you think would be interesting? Who are the chefs? So we, oh my God, we work with the best chefs ever. So yeah. we work with Chef Jimmy Lee of Madame Vo here in New York, yep. um, Nicole Ponseca, James Beard nominated cookbook author. She's incredible. Yeah, Nicole's um, great. Chefs Chat and Ohm from Fish Cheeks, uh, Dookie, obviously, um, in San Francisco, uh, Maiko from Besu, RIP, uh, and Emily Kang of Mala Project um, here in New York. Nice. These are all really well-regarded, yeah. young, cool, yeah. Asian-American chefs. Yeah. This is this. There's inspiration there for you, yeah. speaking to chefs. They, they know their cuisines best. They yeah. have deep roots. Um, they also run incredible restaurants and so have a ton of consumer understanding there. So we really leaned on them and collaborated with them end to end. And they are so rad. We're, I'm so glad to be paying them a royalty fee. Like they're just really incredible people. I truly believe rising tides raise all boats. And so, uh, yeah. I'm so happy you used the word royalty. And <laughs> I know you knew the question was coming because I asked you oh. this at the beginning of when we spoke years ago. Um this isn't just a work for hire. Yeah. You're not just like taking a recipe, giving them a fee. And sometimes that fee is significant sure. and not against that model. But you're actually paying royalties. Each um, package yep. gets the chef some money. Yeah. They're the experts. They yeah. worked with us. Obviously, you know, we kind of brought it to life. But they deserve to be compensated fairly for their work, their expertise, their brand and credibility in the space. So, 
Yeah, so every single product, whether in-store or online, they're paid a royalty. So, Kim, <laughs> I think this is actually atypical. I don't think – I think most big food companies pay mm. for the time and the research, and then you send an, sure. sign an NDA, and it's like, see you later. I feel like <laughs> the idea of rev share mm. is rare. So cool for you for doing that. Yeah, I don't – I guess – yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Uh, it's nice to see that. And okay, so I want to ask you about disruption because you you think about these things and you've disrupted this this you know the stand this dump and stir um, <laughs> industry. What else in food can be disrupted in a similar way? Yeah, that's really interesting. You use the word disrupted. That's a really interesting term because I don't think that's the way that Vanessa and I frame it. I yeah. think we frame it of what can we bring cultural integrity to. Yeah, because I believe that that's what's largely been missing, and I can only speak, you know, for Asian American products in the ethnic aisle. Like that's what I felt like has been missing is not lack of perhaps like packaging or technical format, or the, you know that disruption needed there. Although, yeah, caveat there with Asia's doing really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more just like how can we bring like heart and soul and. Yeah. I don't like to use the word authenticity, but no. yeah, cultural. You're, you're t- saying cultural integrity, integrity, which yeah. I love as well, and yeah. I love. I just I use the dis- the douchey term of disrupt intentionally. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of that either, but I, I feel integrity is like like education from the yes. product. That's something you bring yes. a lot with, not just with the packaging, but with the content you create. Yeah, there's real like you you have really like information is is real on Umsum. Yeah, thank you so much. That's that's super important to us. Is that yes, I want to bring more Asian flavors into American households 100, percent but I also want to do that with integrity with the right people being compensated and behind it with the kind of right representation and in who's kind of driving that movement um we're not the only ones which is amazing you know there's we're part of a much larger movement of other first and second gen folks kind of redoing this for their own communities so yeah in, in that case if we are to take the lens of cultural integrity my goodness what category can we not you know from frozen ready-made yeah. to snacks to drinks like we're seeing it play out right now in front of our eyes, and it's it's so rad. How do you uh, look at the grocery industry? How do you research the grocery industry? Is it is it just heading out to a lot of stores and just tasting a lot? How do you how do you guys stay on top of that stuff? Uh, yeah, our team is very scrappy, so it's yeah. literally us like going into stores, doing yeah. tons of store visits. We also are thankful to have a really robust online community. So consumer testing for us is really easy. We actually like use close friends on Instagram Story yeah. as like kind of a unique way to kind of hack some things. We run tons of polls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we stay really close, really, really close to our community. So you have like super users essentially. Yeah, it's rad. And they all like put their hand up. <laughs> it's it's not us yeah. like being like, hi, we need them. They're literally people like, how can I help? Well, they love the brand and they love yeah. you, the two of you. <laughs> What's it like working with your sister? It is the greatest privilege. I know people want to hear this like catty, petty story, but it's not. Like I think in the beginning, Vanessa and I definitely struggled. You know, you have all these narratives and projections, you know, about your siblings but now, you know, two plus, three plus years in, it's just deep trust, deep love, a lot of vulnerability. We practice a lot of vulnerability with mm-hmm. each other. And, yeah, she's my best friend. She's the fucking smartest person I know. Um, <laughs> she's so great. And I, I cannot imagine building this business with anyone else. How do you divide the, the roles then? Like, so yeah. I think you have different backgrounds um, yeah. in terms of your education and yeah, your history. Thankfully, it's right down the middle. Vanessa's left brain. I'm right brain. Love so that. She's CEO. She owns ops, finance, strategy, product. She's our numbers girl. She's incredibly strategic, long-term thinker. I'm right brain, creative, internet weirdo. So I do all our brand, content, marketing, um, community. It it's it's great because we can kind of trust each other and be like, all right, I I I'll default to you. You know, you own this, but we also, you know, 
trust and love each other and have trust in each other's skills. It's, it's rad. Very <laughs> candid. I love I love that you can actually articulate that because I feel – and I wasn't looking for the catty details. That, those are actually boring. <laughs> I love that there's harmony, but there's also vulnerability. Yes. Very cool. Yes. Let me ask you, what's it like in the Umsum office? What's it like vibe in there? Because you really do live like your <laughs> life do. online and you have a great brand – online and it seems like a fun place obviously you work hard there's stress yes. i can't like i don't want to make it seem like it's like all fun but like what's that vibe like in the office yeah i would say you know first and foremost proud and loud and we really encourage our team to bring their whole selves into the office that doesn't have to look our way right like i think omsom as a brand and perhaps kim and vanessa's individuals proud and loud is a very specific way but folks really are encouraged to bring their fullness. Um, so it's a lot of fun. We do work very hard. I will say what is perhaps unique about our team is that we're quite like heart forward as a team. Um, like Vanessa and I have cried in front of our team often and we kind of not encourage it, but we encourage kind of raw emotion. We encourage vulnerability. Um, we're basically building the business that I think her and I wish that we had access to when we were younger yeah. in every way. Like Vanessa came from corporate America. I came from startups. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work, and we eat very well. Yeah. You have a test kitchen in <laughs> we there? We have a test kitchen. We're always doing tons of content and videos and R&D. Yeah. And so our team is always nibbling. <laughs> yeah. I'd love, to, I'd love to check it out. I'd love yes, to hang oh out at God. your office. Whenever you're in Bushwick, let me know. Yeah, definitely. I used to have an office in Bushwick. Yeah, good neighborhood. There's like, yes. Do you ever go over to Say for coffee? We're literally around the corner from Say. Oh, my gosh. We're above Roberta's. <laughs> oh, you're above Roberta's. Yeah, I think. That's near where I was working out. Nice. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. it's, it's kind of boho and like hipster, and it's it's kind of perfect. If I'm it's, being it is a great neighborhood. It's changed so much over it the years. It has. It has. Like North yeah. Brooklyn has. Now you launched something called the If You Know You Know <laughs> Set, which yeah. I think is cool <laughs> because I've written about this thing often. But what is the thing that If You Know You Know the thing? The, the elephant thing. in the room. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> I, though I was talking to somebody recently who I, I is a smart person and. Gave me the exact opposite reaction mm. that I I think you're gonna say. So let's interesting. Talk about it. Yeah. So a drum that we've long beat since literally day one of the business is around MSG, the demonization of MSG, and how it's actually a, a very convenient vehicle for anti-Asian racism and xenophobia. Very convenient. So very well convenient. Said. And it was wild because when we first started the business, like you really can't run an Asian brand without someone within minutes of meeting you asking, do you have MSG in your products? And Vanessa and I, and I always just really struggled with that because on one hand, we're like, yes, we love that people are being intentional about what's in their food and, and what they're consuming. Love that. We What we don't love is that Inherently, there was this like, oh, well, Chinese food makes me sick. It gives me headaches. And we're like, my God, there's so many generalizations and frankly, like bad science here. So we wanted to like walk the walk. So we released a ton of content that started to do well. We released our first ever sauce that had MSG in it. That actually became a huge reason why Whole30, like the institution, removed MSG from their restricted list. They explicitly cited Omsom as part of the reason That's why. Great. And we're like, oh, my God, wow, like this is rad. Like we're actually educating folks around MSG and how – a lot of the pushback against it was rooted in bad science, like flawed studies. In yeah, 19- the old JAMA study from back or New England Journal of Medicine, yeah. whatever it was, really flawed. And so flawed. Total, total xenophobia. Yes. Playing out, yeah. And it just became this way for people to be like, oh, well, Asian food is dirty. Asian, like, this great Chinese poison. And so Oof. we're like, all right, like, how can we continue to, like, walk the walk? So then we're like, what if we made a shaker set that had salt, 
pepper, and MSG that posits MSG as belonging on every single American household right next to salt and pepper. So we're like, all right, let's do it. So we worked with AreaWare um, to build nice. these really beautiful shakers. They're very proud and loud, kind of with the premise of like, look, we believe that MSG should be a part of every American pantry. Yeah. How so do you cook with it? I everything I like so I basically use it almost like I would use salt like yeah. in marinade soups stews I also use it to finish dishes yeah. like kind of to bring that umami kick David Chang puts it in his popcorn which I, I love yeah um, I even sprinkle it sometimes on sweet things because I think that really kind of brings a nice balance to it it's it's so versatile and so we really just wanted to create the shaker to show folks like literally empower you to sprinkle it on Almost anything. It makes me so happy to to, <laughs> to hear that and the fact that Whole30 changed the yeah the, wild the, yeah it's very cool that you did that. Um, how, so let's talk about your business now. <laughs> very stressful time. Very stressful yes. time. We've, we're entering um, some murky <sighs> waters with our economy. Credit is t- is bad. I mean, interest rates are money is hard to find. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't want to get into the details of your like book or anything, but like, <laughs> how do you grow? at this kind of tricky time or do you not think about that maybe it's let's mm. like let's stay stay where we're at yeah. i'm assuming that's probably not what your answer is but we'll yeah see. very pertinent questions that you're asking <laughs> i think what vanessa and i are trying to ground ourselves in that we've kind of heard feedback from founders who've been through this game is one like never let go of your audience and your community it becomes so easy right now when you are bogged down in scarcity to just chase everything, try and find every opportunity, basically like, you know, manically start to, I think of it as like a duck underwater, like the legs under the water are just like kind of going mad. It becomes really easy to chase opportunities and let yourself kind of get lost a little bit. I think it's like one dedication to our consumer. Who are they? What do they need right now? And then two, I think it's also have some humility in receiving feedback and inputs. I think something, another thing that founders can do is they can get so in their head about this is the plan. This is the plan. This is what we sold maybe our investors or we sold our team, sold ourselves. This is it. And I think it it requires humility to be like, let's actually look at what's playing out. Like, let's look at our numbers. Let's look at what our community is telling us. Let's look at how the team is feeling. Let's look at our gut and actually like, have the courage sometimes, the courage and the humility to look at them and mm-hmm. and start to make adjustments to the plan. Um, there's this thing that Vanessa kind of, sh- an article that Vanessa shared with me is that a lot of founders can get lost basically on weak signal. Like they get a weak signal and they spend years chasing that weak signal when sometimes you just need to look if something's like a good signal or a bad signal. Like it's almost kind of binary in some to some extent. And it takes courage to look at like, oh, maybe this is a weak signal. Like maybe what we're seeing is actually it's not going to be the future of our business. Like do we need to pivot or do we need to iterate? Do we need to make adjustments? That's been kind of a hard-learned lesson for us as first-time founders is yeah. is not following weak signals. Yeah, absolutely. Well said and, and really enlightening about how uh, you have to be holistic in your approach during yeah. these tr- tr- tricky times. And yeah. I think about like weak signals all the time with taste because yeah. we as a business, we have core business, then we have like mm. peripheral business and we try to, um, not to call Peter Kafka on you, but I, I feel like 
we try to diversify but also meet our mm. audience where they're yeah. at. Yeah. And listener, you've made it this far. Thank you for <laughs> meeting us where – thank you for allowing us to meet you where you're at because the podcast is really important to us yeah. because we feel like that's what our readers want. They want to hear conversations and it's a little yeah. bit about me now. I'm sorry, listener. <laughs> no, but, I love it. but I feel like Weak Signals is really pertinent advice. And when you talk about feedback and inputs from outside and, and taking them, what were some that you were given along the way, maybe recently mm. or middle middle distance that you that you took, that you changed? Because yeah. I'm, I'm always – this is kind of like how the sausage is made. Yeah. Pun intended. Um, one of – the biggest thing probably that I can think of right now is when we launched into Whole Foods, we did a whole packaging redesign. Because what we realize is that, like, I don't know if you've seen our, you know, online D2C packaging. It's super Instagram, you yeah. know, eye-catching. It's extremely cool. Thank you. I love it. I love it when I have it on my shelf. Yeah, I love it looking at thank it. Thank you. I mean, and it's and it's optimized for that experience, right? But we've realized, like, the decision that you're making online is really different from the decision that you're making in-store. And so we did a ton of consumer testing with our D2C packaging that basically told us this cannot go in the store. There's no picture of the food. People have no idea maybe what some of these dishes are. They don't understand the flavor profiles. So that was like our first kind of real big shock as a team of like this thing that we had held on a pedestal, which was our packaging, our, our beautiful brand for so long, actually does not cannot come with us into this next stage of our business. And there is some realities here that it's we have to face. It's probably painful because you, you spend so much time. You are the, the art direction side yeah. and you love it. I think many people did love it, but it makes yeah. perfect sense. So we had to – that was like tons of inputs, harsh, many harsh inputs um, that then ultimately informed like, all right, with our you know retail packaging, there's a photo of the dish. There's call out of ingredients. There's a description of the flavor profile. Also, funnily enough, there's a picture of an SNI on the front, yeah. which I never thought – people would care about, but basically people saw our DTC packaging cold, didn't obviously see our website, social, any of it, and they're like, this is some fancy conglomerate who put a ton of money into an agency to build something trendy. The second we put our picture on it, they're like, oh my God, we love that it's Asian-owned. 100%. And it literally just took that. It took a small little photo to change the way that people viewed our product's credibility is so wild. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, everyone thinks that it's like this big, bad, millennial, pink-driven <laughs> VC who exactly. starts all food companies. And, like, truthfully, many are started by yep. those big, bad VC companies. <laughs> um, but putting your face on, my Kamal's faces on stuff, yeah. you know, and that that's a, is that, do you have a North Star as a brand that you look at when you're thinking about growth from some? Mm. Not really. Again, that's not to say like we're Great doing something answer. so unique. Great answer. I just think, you know, there's there's ton that tons of brands that we learn from in really specific ways. But I think what we've been trying to do is uh, it feels unique in many ways. It's so like when I look at the brands that I admire from a content storytelling brand perspective, they're oftentimes not in food. They're like in fashion or tech. Not even tech, sorry. Fashion, music, media. When I look at kind of the trajectory that we're on, I look at a lot of like the OG Asian brands like in Asia and the way that they've thought about product expansion and category um, management. Like I I really admire that. I look at like fellow Asian run brands and I'm like, I love what they're doing for the culture. So we we take snippets from things, but I think what we're trying to do does feel kind of unique. I wouldn't say we're like, oh, we're trying to do 
X, Y, Z, but in the ethnic aisle. There's no kind of no, parallel. No, and you're so articulate when you say that because no one wants to hear that. <laughs> Maybe in a boardroom, but not in a podcast. <laughs> uh, we had Jingao on. We t- fly by Jing. Yeah. Great company. She name-checked you guys. Oh. And I want to ask the same question that I asked her. What are some Asian-owned brands that we should be knowing about? Are there some, like, this is the time. <gasps> so that many. <laughs> I know, and, and I know there's a community and, and some formal incubation happening, yeah. which is exciting. I hope to write about it one day for taste. I'd love to. Yeah. But what's, sh- let's shout some names out, please. Hell yeah. Um, Nguyen Coffee Supply, Sarah Nguyen. Yes. Genius. Um, also Viet from Boston. Have mad love for her. Sandro from Sanzo. One of the most heart-forward, vulnerable guys I've ever met. And just the most in- delicious, sparkling oh water. Oh, my God juice that you're going to Oh, my gosh. Stellar. Um, I'm obsessed with Boone Chili Oil based out in L.A. They're Thai-owned. One of my favorites. Obviously, Jing, Fly by Jing. They're doing incredible, incredible work for the culture. Um, Who else? Yishi. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, Like Asian, uh, I guess, flavored Mm -hmm. oatmeal, which has been so fun to have taro oatmeal. Like, I just love that people are bringing maybe bits and pieces of their culture, their identity, or what they grew up with to like American staples. I think yeah. that's really, really rad to see. Super rad. Thank you for sharing yeah, those names. I course. knew most of them, but there was a few <laughs> the last one. Say it again. Yishi. Yishi. Yeah. Unfamiliar. Okay. New York City restaurants. Let's talk about it. Let's go. You are on always out there hunting and scouting. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I did not ask you this in advance. All good. Give me three give me three spots that we should be going to in New York. Okay. When when um Eric say can do no wrong. He also reps MSG, which I love. Yeah, it's cool. He has my favorite thing on the menu is his BDSM chicken, which stands for <laughs> bone, uh, brined, deboned, and soy marinated. Obsessed. <laughs> um, obviously, also going to shout out Bonnie's. I live around the corner. Calvin also can do no wrong. Um, I think his cacio e pepe is stellar. Again, also very third culture kid, which I I really appreciate. Yeah. And then um, I've been digging on Antidote. I'm a North Brooklyn girl. Yeah. Um, really stellar Chinese, thoughtfully done, um, I guess, in Williamsburg area, Greenpoint yeah. area. There's a lot happening in Asian food in, like, North Williamsburg, Greenpoint. Absolutely. Like, Mala Project's opening up. Oh, cool. Um, I didn't know that. In January. Very nice. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really stoked. I always like Mala. I love, I love stopping by Mala Project yeah. in January, February. Yes. That's the perfect time. And all the great <laughs> stuff happening with Korean American cuisine in New yes. York is just absolute fire. It's yeah. so good. Have you been to Lise yet? No, the not dessert yet. dessert bar? Oh, it's oh, amazing. Okay. I'll Check it. Okay. okay, cookbooks. Are there a couple cookbooks that you can point to that you've maybe gone back to or read or that you have mm. in your collection that you that's in the office? Yes, I am Filipino. Nicole Jeepneys. I mean, yep. sorry, Nicole Ponseca of Jeepney. Jeepney, Maharlika, yep. Um, I'm obs- I, I read that like a novel because of all just the beautiful research that she's done about the uniqueness that is Filipino cuisine. It's a beautiful book. Um, I have been, I haven't been cooking out of it, but I've been reading out of the Deshoom cookbook. I used to live in London for a couple years. Cool. Um, a lot of their stuff feels somewhat like in, inaccessible to me because it's, I think it's very pure in its, um, in its creation, which I really appreciate. So I, again, I read that more than I cook from it. And Pepper Teagan's cookbook, I quite enjoy. Yeah. Um, just easy, um, Thai kind of home style cooking. Yeah, really well made book and and, yeah. and, and easy and relatively fast uh, Thai recipes. I love yeah, that book. exactly. Um, and last question with media, who are some follows? I got mm. a, like essential follows that maybe our listeners don't um, have in their in their feed. Okay, Bettina Makalintal. Um, guest on the podcast. 
obsessed. She's been here. Um, Tina is a is an amazing yes. amazing follow. Please do that. Um, Abby Belinget, I'm really repping the uh, the Filipina girls here. Um, <laughs> but Abby Belinget does I I she brings me such joy. Her approach to baking and her Filipino culture is really inspiring to me. Um, who else have I been like nerding on? I put you on the spot, so yeah. these two are great, <laughs> and definitely follow you. So, what's yours? Let's give you your socials. Yes, I'm Kim of the Internet on all platforms, uh, Instagram and yeah, TikTok. Yeah, you are a great follow. So Thank you. let's let's. Okay, so I want to know where are you in a couple years? I don't want to say five because it seems like five hundred at this point. Are you breaking out of this category a little mm. bit? Um, the pouch and dumping and cooking with yeah. proteins and vegetables. Very good business. Very. Very solid. You haven't yeah. gone in too many other directions, but yeah. where do you go? I think we definitely do want to continue to expand product lines and, and as you say, like meet folks where they're at. So that might be a little bit earlier on their journey, clo- a little bit closer to ready-made. That could be snacks. It could be frozen. You know, we're really super open to what that looks like. And honestly, for me, what gets me excited as a brand thinker is continuing to build out this what I feel like is a very lifestyle component of Omsom. Like I think when people rep Omsom, they're not like, I rep these sauces. They do. They love the sauces. Mm-hmm. I think they rep this larger third culture, first and second gen, like pride and rowdiness that does feel like it transcends food in some ways. So I don't know if that's like a music festival. I don't know if that's like a TV show. There feels like there's something here yeah. that when people rep Omsom, they are telling the world something about their, themselves. And that's kind of like what I want to flesh out a little very, bit. Very, very interesting and cool yeah. because I think there is hyper creativity. There's vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. There's candidness in your brand. I, I get Thank all of you. that from your social. <laughs> I love it. I love I love what you do. And that's Thank why I you. wanted to have you back. Oh. <laughs> Kim, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would this book project be? Oh my gosh, what a great question. No constraints. I'm obsessed with what people eat late at night. I love the dilution of desire that occurs when you're a little inebriated yeah. under some substances. <laughs> it's late night. Like I think all of this like, oh, what I what I I think if you ask someone what they cook on a date night, that'll tell you one answer, and what they cook when they're like hammered after karaoke with friends is like another. <laughs> so I'm just obsessed with that distillation. Um so I would love to tour the world, meet with all different types of people, drink, hang out, smoke, whatever, party with them. And then just see what that late night meal is of like, all right, w- ravers in Berlin post Berkheim at 6 a.m. to. Have you been to Berkheim? I have. I lived oh, in Berlin for a little bit. Wait, you went to Berkheim? Can we go off <laughs> mic and talk about Berkheim? Of course we can. Always <laughs> we can. Um, or like OG grandmas in Shanghai, what they're doing after Mahjong. You know, like I just I want to see what those late night meals are and I want to like party with them. <laughs> I love this. I mean, legit. I know like Vice did munchies like years ago oh, and that's yeah. fun. But from your point of view and just like the the richness of this pitch that I've asked <laughs> you to do on the spot is so cool. I'm like already excited to hear more about these late night <laughs> adventures. Kim Pham, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so fun. I love nerding out on food and culture. Thanks. <laughs> The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. 
Visit TasteOnline at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.